We are going to, hold your breath, look at the whole chapter this morning. But, we will make it through on time. I just, uh, it just, everything just fits together in this, this chapter. And I thought, man, I can't, I can't break it apart. So, we're going to get the whole, uh, whole chapter here, Matthew 23. Have faith. We already did this through the first service, so we made it. We made it through the first service, okay. <laughs> so Matthew 23. The title of my message this morning is "It's Time to Face the Music." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your Word, Lord, to know that it's your plan, it's your purpose for us to be here. Lord, you've drawn us here. You've called us together. Uh, Lord, to hear from you this morning. We pray, Father, that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us today. Lord, that our lives might be changed and we might be drawn closer into our relationship with you. And Father, we do pray for our children and our youth downstairs as they're being taught your word that the same thing would be for them, Lord, that as the, the word goes forth, it would change their hearts and they would learn your word and draw closer to you. We do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, they, they haven't come to you and, and repented of their sin, Lord, would you especially speak to their hearts today, that they would know you and love you as so many of us do here this morning. We ask your blessing upon our time, we commit it to you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. That phrase, it's time to face the music, have you ever wondered where it came from? Well, it's said to have been originated in Japan. And the story goes that this man uh, in, in the Imperial Orchestra could not play a note, could not play an instrument. Uh, being a person of great influence and great wealth, he uh, demanded that he be given a place in the orchestra because he wanted to perform for the emperor. So the conductor agreed to let him be a part of this orchestra, and they put him in the second row, you know, with, with the flute playing, the flutist, and he was given a flute and told, okay, when it's time to play, you just lift it up and just pretend like you're playing and, and put it down. And he did that actually for a couple of years. Well, finally they got a new uh, conductor, and when the new conductor took over, he says, well, I'm not sure the skill of every one of our uh, players here, and so we need to check these musicians to see what their ability is. And so each one of the musicians had to come in and play their instrument. Well, when it came to this guy, he freaked out, and, oh, I'm sick, I'm not doing well, I can't, I can't come in. And so they had their, you know, their, their doctor, their designated doctor examine him, and they said, Yo, you're fine. And nothing's wrong with you. So finally the day came when he had to appear before the conductor and he had to face the music. That's where it came from. Well, in chapter 23 of Matthew, we have the Pharisees and it's time for them to face the music. You see, in chapter 23 here, we have the last public message that Jesus ever gave. It was a sermon not on salvation, a sermon not on the principles of living in the kingdom, but rather it's a scathing denunciation of the false religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you recall, over our last few weeks of Sunday mornings, we have been looking at the Pharisees and the Herodians and the scribes all coming against Jesus. And remember, they first questioned him on his authority. How did you have the authority to drive out the money changers in the temple? We saw that in chapter 21. Chapter 22, their, their next question was, well, well, you know, what's our responsibility? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Hoping to trip him up, hoping to trick him. 
And Jesus said, render under things that are under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, under God the things that are God's. Well, then we looked at, you know, the, the subject of the resurrection. If a woman has a husband, he dies, and that happens seven different times. He's married the, the, the brothers seven times. When they get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Whose husband is she going to be with? And, and Jesus said, you don't understand the way heaven is in the resurrection. But they're still after him, trying to trick him up. And then the last one we saw last week, where the, 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 you know, the lawyer, you know, came and said, okay, we got a question about the law. This was okay. We're going to get you this time. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the questioning was done. Jesus says, okay, now it's my turn. And that's what Matthew 24 is. See, their religion paraded under the appearance of truth, but it was all just a facade. What we'll see is they're all hypocrites. You know, from Matthew 23, that's where we have developed the idea that the word Pharisee is synonymous with the word hypocrite. Now, not all of them certainly were hypocrites, but I would say a great deal of them were, the majority were, and they had really substituted ritual for reality, formality for faith, and liturgy for a vital, loving relationship with God. And we also see in this chapter just how much God hates hypocrisy. I think of Acts chapter 5. There in the early church, a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, came in and told the church, hey, we sold everything we have, and here's the proceeds from that. We're giving it to the church. And, and they were busted because they were lying, and they didn't give all that they had. And, and if you recall that, uh, you know, they were taken out. They were, they were slain in the Spirit. The first couple to be actually slain in the Spirit, God struck them dead. Now, could you imagine if God dealt with us in the same way today over hypocrisy? None of us would make it through a worship service. I surrender all. I surrender all. Stop singing that song. Dropping like flies. But thank God for His grace. Yes, yet God still hates hypocrisy. And because of that, we are going to see some of the strongest words Jesus uses in all of His teachings. In fact, uh, if you're taking notes, we're going to see eight woes that He, put, that he points out. And we're going to see five ways that they were lacking in their walk with God. Now, in this message, we see both in Jesus, his righteous indignation, but we're also going to see his sympathy and his love. Because when Jesus pronounces these eight woes that we'll look at to the Pharisees, he's actually saying, how sad for you, how tragic for you, woe unto you. It's breaking his heart because the judgment that is coming is going to be inevitable. And Jesus does so with the sympathy and compassion as he closes really this chapter in lamenting and weeping over Jerusalem. In other words, God's love and grace are a greater motivation to salvation than hellfire and damnation. But sometimes, as Paul would say, you know, you can be saved by fire in 1 Corinthians 3.15. That is, those who respond to God's grace and goodness, you know, that won't respond to God's grace and goodness, maybe they need to hear a stronger message about hellfire and judgment. So that is why after spending three years preaching His grace and His goodness of His Father, Jesus gives us His final words of judgment. Now I've divided the chapter into three sections. If you're taking notes, we're going to see the explanation, number one, the denunciation, number two, and the lamentation, number three. Now because, again, a lot of, there's a lot of verses here, we're going to kind of do a running commentary as we go, but again, we still have three points, and we'll get done on time, I promise. First point, the explanation. Now the reason point one is explanation is because Jesus is explaining to the crowd 
and to the disciples, those that are gathered around him, the flaws, the problems with these Pharisees and scribes and these, these religious rulers at this time. Five flaws to be exact he's going to point out. But what also makes this interesting to us is how much we see they relate to the false teachers today. Many false teachers are just, you know, hypocrites in, in, in the cult today who like to parade themselves under the umbrella of Christianity, yet their theology is flawed. It's, it's false. Look now at verse 1. We read, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. So Jesus is the one speaking. He's still in the temple. Again, this is the culmination of the clashing with the Pharisees. Uh, and notice he's speaking to the multitudes and his disciples. So these, these are words not to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, it's, it's about them. Um, and since this was approaching the Passover feast, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. So this wasn't one or two people. There is a crowd here. But look at the, the warning he gives them. And he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. And they have these, these five flaws here. The first flaw, if you're taking notes, they lacked the authority from God. Look at verse 2. He's saying that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now in the Greek, this literally means they have seated themselves, or they, they've set themselves up in Moses' seat. In other words, they're self-appointed leaders. Even from a scriptural standpoint, the Pharisees were not a divine institution. They weren't like the Levites, you know. They weren't the priests that God had ordained to lead the nation. They were kind of a, a self-put-together group, separatists, which is what the word Pharisee means. They would separate themselves to keeping the law. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and their motive perhaps is right when they started, but they had veered off the true and, and intended purpose of why they had separated themselves. And they begun to live after the praise of men rather than the glory of God. As I said already, they substituted formality for true faith and all of their legalistic rules and man-made regulations instead of a true love and relationship and devotion to God. Now again, when Jesus said they, they, they set themselves at the seat of Moses, he's saying they, they appointed themselves the only ones that can rightly interpret the law. Now here's the problem with that. The problem was that the people had shifted from the authority of the word of God itself and they placed it on these men in leadership for them interpreting the word of God. You know, one of the problems that I have with many different groups out there is that they shift the authority from the Bible and they put it onto some leader. And that can be disastrous. I mean, you look at Joseph Smith and the Mormons, maybe a, a basic, you know, theology that he had in the beginning, all of a sudden, man, it got on him and, and the mess that they're in, or, or Charles Taze Russell, you know, and the Jehovah Witnesses. These men brought in the destructive heresies, and people blindly follow these men. In Roman Catholicism, now I don't say this to offend anyone, but there is a view that the church is the authority, and that the Bible is a product of the church, therefore the authority lies within the church, not in God's Word, the Bible. This is interesting. Ben Shapiro, back in December, interviewed a Roman Catholic bishop by the name of Robert Barron. When it comes to salvation, Ben asked him this question. He says, I'm a pretty good Jew. I lived a good life. I live a good life. I follow the Ten Commandments and the other 603 laws that go along with that. He also said, I also spend my life living by Judeo-Christian values or virtues. What is the Catholic view of me? Am I, I'll paraphrase what he said, am I lost forever? And the priest says, no. He says, and he quotes the Second Vatican Council by saying that, yes, Christ is the privileged route of salvation, 
and he quotes John 3.16. But he says, those outside the Christian faith can be saved. He says, get this, they are saved through the grace of Christ indirectly received that you receive it according to your conscience. That's what he says. He says to Ben, in your case, Ben, you're following the commandments of the law sincerely so you can be saved. And he goes on to say that Vatican II has said an atheist of goodwill can be saved because if he follows his conscience, it's like following Christ. This is a teaching according to the Roman Catholic Church, Vatican II. Certainly not scripture. How can they say that? It comes back to the authority of the word. They believe the church has the ultimate authority and if the church says something is so, that takes precedence over what the Bible says. Listen, Jesus says in John 3, 3, unless, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. Nothing about a conscience there, is there? You know, how about John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through your conscience. No. <laughs> through me, Jesus said. That's pretty clear. Nothing about a conscience. You can't follow your conscience, as Jimmy Cricket says, and let your conscience be your guide. God's word says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. No man can know it. Listen, you can't stand upon the word of man or some Vatican council, one or two. We stand upon the word of God, period. That's our final authority. Thus, the whole reason for the Protestant Reformation was because the reformers took the stand upon the word of God. So these Pharisees, much like the hierarchy of the Roman church today, have set themselves in the place of authority. Let me say this as clearly as I can. Again, the Bible is our final authority. And what I try to do on a Sunday morning is to communicate to you what the Bible says. Not what Calvary Chapel says. Not what Tom Humphrey says. What the the Bible says. You don't want to hear what I have to say. You want to hear what the Bible has to say. And I want you to come with your Bibles and I want you to open them up and I want you to read with me and I want you to go, okay, is what Tom is saying, is that consistent with the Old Testament and the New Testament? I want you to be Bereans. Search to find out that these things are, are true. You have a responsibility to, to examine the things that I teach in light of the Word of God. Now certainly God has raised up church teachers, but the authority is not in the teacher. The authority comes back to the Word of God. Everything we believe, everything we practice, has to come from God's Word. That's the authority. The Pharisees, they lacked the authority, but they said they had the authority. That's a flaw they had. They also lacked integrity. Number two, look at verse three. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. This is classic. Jesus basically says, do as they say and not as they do. In the same way, you might be hearing someone teaching the Bible and the person who's preaching, their lives are inconsistent with what they're preaching. But if what they're preaching is biblical, it's still your responsibility responsibility to, to obey the word. God will deal with that individual, but your commitment is to be obedient to the word, even though you know the preacher may be a hypocrite. A couple of weeks ago on a Sunday we had our baptism. I'm going to admit it to the church. On my way to the baptism, I'm a little bit late. I'm going down a back road in Nixa. I didn't see the police officer there. I didn't know I was going that much above the speed limit. There was nobody else on the road. Doesn't make it right. And I got myself a ticket. I'm thinking, oh Lord, don't let anyone pass me that's going to the baptism. (laughs) Oh man. So even though I teach obey the speed limit, okay, 
You still need to obey the limit. You know, God's working on my right foot. I, I mean, that's all I'm saying. But you'll have people say, well, well, you know, I'm not going to do what the preacher says because he's just a hypocrite. Fine. Do what the Bible says. That's what you need to do. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. And I think for us as parents, it can really be a challenge for us to instruct our children and then really ask ourselves, am I doing what I'm telling my kids to do? When we ask our kids, have you said your prayers? Well, have I said my prayers? When we ask our kids, well, be quiet. Stop raising your voice. Don't yell. Okay. But is it okay for me to yell as a dad? How can we expect our children to pray and seek the Lord if we don't do the same thing? So I read about a man who, who sat through a church service and he was on his way home and he, he fussed about the sermon and he fussed about the traffic and he fussed about the heat and he fussed about the lateness of the meal being served and he, then he bowed his, and prayed and his son was watching him all the way through this whole post-church experience. And just as they were beginning to pass around the food, he said, Daddy, did God hear you when we left the church? And you started fussing about the sermon and, and about the, the traffic, uh, about the heat. The father sort of blushed, embarrassed, and said, Well, yes, son, he heard me. Well, Daddy, did God hear you when you just prayed for this food right now? And he says, Well, yes, son, uh, he, he heard me. So, well, Daddy, which one did God believe? Ouch. I mean, are we living a consistent life? Do we live what we preach as a walk, match, or talk? Jesus said, listen, do what they tell you, but don't do what they do. Their lives lacked integrity because they were living in duplicity. And then thirdly, they lacked sympathy. Look at verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So they, they put on these people all these sort of legalistic rules and regulations. You've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do this. How many times today do we have people been turned off from church because of legalism? Because of rules. You've got to do, you can't come to church, you know, unless you keep these rules. Don't do this, don't do that. Hey, no hats in church, you know, no drums in church, only church organs, and, and you can only, you know, sing hymns and, and that's it, or, and you can't wear this or hang out there, don't dance, and certainly don't have fun, don't smile in church. You know, and, and, and people get, get put under all these things that are just, they're not biblical. I, I often ask Tom, what about this or what about that? You know, I went to this church and, and they said, if I want to be a member of this church, you have to be baptized. And I told them that I'd been baptized about a year ago, but, but, but they said, well, we need to really know that you're really Christian, so you need to be baptized again. Really? Where's that in Scripture? I don't find it in the Bible. It's not something that God has instructed in His Word. So when you come up with these things, or you're faced with these things, you have to ask yourself, okay, is this a requirement that the leadership of this church is putting on me, or is it a biblical principle or mandate from God's Word? So these Pharisees are putting burdens on the people, yokes that neither them nor their fathers were able to bear, but they wouldn't lift one finger to help those that are trying to bear others' burdens, so they lacked sympathy. The fourth flaw, they lacked spirituality. Look at verse 5. But all their works they do to be seen by men, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, I think this is the whole key, perhaps the whole key to the chapter, where it says that they do these things to be seen by men. See, he's just, he's pointing out the unspiritualness of these men. You know, he said, don't do as they do. And one of the things they did was that they would make these phylacteries. Now, phylacteries, a little leather box that they would put, you know, uh, under four, it was the scriptures, and they would put them in this little box, and they would strap it to their head. And here's an example for it. You can see a picture of it right there. Now they still do that today. 
Now, God didn't instruct them, per se, on phylacteries. However, he did say in his word, in the book of Deuteronomy, that the word of the Lord should be before their eyes and down close to their heart. So they would wear this on their arms as well, right here. And, and so they, they, they took it to the extreme. They developed these phylacteries so they could keep to the word, but they took it to the extreme so that the word was before their eyes and before their hearts. And the bigger the phylactery, the more spiritual they were. I mean, they got so big that they couldn't even see past them. And then the same thing with, the, with their prayer shawls. They had this blue fringe around the borders of their garments to identify them as being heavily minded or, or set apart unto God. And that's not a bad thing. The priests in Leviticus had, had certain clothing to wear. But these guys took it to the extreme. I mean, they weren't Levites. You know, they, they took the extreme. So they, were, they wouldn't get, just get any fringe. They would get the really long fringe, you know, around the garment in order for it really, really to stand out. I think we can maybe do the same thing today. You come to church and, hey, look at my new Bible I got. It, you know, it's, it's a study Bible that weighs 20 pounds. And you're going, look at all these notes in there and all these things right here. Isn't this awesome? And you never read it. But look at the footnotes. Or you come to church and you sing really, really loud so everyone knows you're spiritual. You love the Lord. But it's not from your heart, it's from your diaphragm. You know, I mean, and here they are, they're putting these tassels on and they're doing all these things. The same way, I think, where in the world did we ever come up with the idea that God is so concerned about what we wear at church on Sunday? I think God is just as concerned what we wear Monday through Saturday as he is on Sunday. But what we wear or don't wear isn't a sign of spirituality. See, these ministers with, with the white collars, you see these, they've got the white collars, or they wear the robes and the black suits, and I go, why? What's the point? So someone knows you're a spiritual man? And that should be evident without robes and collars. You know, dogs have collars, and they're not spiritual. I, you know, I don't know. But these Pharisees, you know, they put on all, all these things so everyone can see that they were spiritual. Jesus is going, but they're lacking spirituality. Then in verses 6 and 7, the fifth thing they lacked was that they lacked humility. Look at verses 6 and 7. They loved the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by man, Rabbi, Rabbi. Now the best seats in the, in the synagogue were the ones that faced everyone else so, so they can check you out. So it would be like maybe sitting up here in a seat and lining them all up here, and that's the, 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 the best seats. And then the phrase here being called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, meant that they were being called, they were being called, my great one, my great one. Again, I don't know why today pastors and ministers use the title reverend. Oh, this is reverend so-and-so, most holy right reverend so-and-so. Listen, Jesus was the only reverend, reverend one. People say, well, what do I call you? Well, my name is Tom. I mean, you call me Tom. Call me Pastor Tom if you want. I mean, years ago, you could have called me postal worker Tom when I, when I worked in the post office years, many years ago. I don't think you want to call me ex-postal worker because that's not a good title. I had a reputation many, many years ago that, that not a few, not a good title, but those that they raise themselves up, you know, and appoint themselves and give them these titles and, and all these things, but they really lack humility. See, the true spiritual leader avoids elevated titles. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, But you do not be called a rabbi, for one is your teacher, for the Christ, and you are all brethren. I mean, even those of us who teach, we're still disciples. We're still learners. A teacher learns while he teaches others. None of us 
as a writer, I've shared this before, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. That's where we're at. See, for a Christian, there's no higher level than learner. Verse 9, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. I read that and I wonder how Roman Catholics can justify calling priests father. I mean, it's right there. I've had people come up to me before and say, uh, Father, I have a question for you. Uh, father, that kind of creeped me out. No, I'm, not, I'm not a father, okay? I mean, I'm a dad. You know, I got kids, but it wasn't my kids that asked me that. It was someone else. But Verse 10, And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Now, that word for teacher there in verse 10 is different than the one in verse 8. In verse 8, it's not the same Greek word as the word in 10. In 8, it means teacher. In verse 10, it means guide or authority. So this is going back to the, the, the question of authority. So we're in the church. Avoid elevated titles. We are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. God sees us as equals. But, he says, verse 11, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that God's way? The way up is down. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This brings us to point number two, the denunciation. We're going to look at verses 13 through 36, and we'll get done in time. I'm giving you that encouragement. But it's the second division of the chapter, and Jesus turns to the disciples, or not, rather to the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the scribes that were there, and he pronounces eight woes to them. The first woe Jesus pronounces in verse 13. Look at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, the word for hypocrite there is the, the Greek word hypo, hypocrite. It, it's where, you know, it, it speaks of an actor. One who wears a mask, uh, to put under a mask. And, you know, maybe, maybe some of you did this this morning. What day is it, honey? It's Sunday. Okay, got to put on that Sunday morning mask. Oh, hi, going to church is my Sunday morning face. Hi, then it's the Monday morning mask. Uh, kind of grumpy. God help us not to be hypocrites or creeps, but just to be sincere and genuine and take the mask off. Jesus says that these guys would shut up the kingdom of heaven. Well, how would they do that? Well, in the same way many do today. They, they would not teach or preach or communicate or convey the true meaning of God's word. They are perverted and twisted and clouded at its meaning. And secondly, they, they had rejected Jesus, and so they're not pointing people to the Messiah, the Savior. And we see the same thing happening today. People, these preachers out there, they'll take a simple text and they'll twist it and twink it, and they'll yank out of its context and they'll read into it whatever they want it to read, not what God wants it to mean. Or they apply it in a way that God never intended it to be applied, and they keep people from entering the kingdom of God. I think one example of this is the prosperity doctrine that's out there, the prosperity gospel, you know, that, that God, you know, wants you to prosper financially and just send your money in and, and it's an investment portfolio. He'll double your money. You know, where's that found in God's word? But they preach prosperity and not the gospel. And people aren't coming to faith because they're preaching that and not the gospel. I think, and I brought this guy up before, the Joel Osteen Ministries. I'm sorry, I've never heard you need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ right now. We're all sinners. I've never heard that. But the ministry is huge. Many people gathering together. But do they really know Jesus Christ? How many are truly born again? Then what a huge missed opportunity for those 
thousands upon thousands of people to gather together and you not present the gospel? Not give people opportunities to come to faith in Jesus? Here Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says uh, of the kingdom of God, they themselves haven't even entered in and they're keeping others from entering in. So many religious organizations where they put the authority on man and they have clouded up again the true simple message of the gospel and they think, well, just if you have a positive attitude and, 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 and listen to your conscience or if you just, you know, if you can speak in tongues or if you have these good works, well, whatever the church tells you to do, then you're going to be fine, you're going to be safe. Again, this goes back to the scriptures as our authority and tells us how to be saved. It's in faith alone and Christ alone and that's it. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Simple. Very clear. So many groups out there twisted and, and plot up the meanings of salvation with their dogmas and liturgies and, and people go to church to find God and, and it's a blind leading the blind. They haven't entered the kingdom so those who are following them haven't entered into the kingdom. Look at verse 14 now. This is the second woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. So here the Jews would rush to a woman who had just lost her husband and tell her that she can honor her husband's memory by making her a donation to the ministry. Now, where do you hear stuff like that nowadays? I mean, it's a tele-evangelist all over the place. Man, you just send in your social security check. I know it's not very much, but God is going to give you back much more. And, and, and you know, he goes on here. And they would pray these long hypocritical prayers while they do deceitful things. Jesus says, verse 14, they will receive the greater condemnation. Why does he say that? Because they knew better. The Bible says, to much is given, much is required. You see, when he says in verse 14, they will receive the greater condemnation, I think within that verse there's a hint of an idea that there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell. I mean, if you say that, if it says you receive a greater condemnation as opposed to those who didn't know any better, didn't know as much as were uninformed yet, they'll still go to hell and be judged, but they'll, they'll be judged greater. And then we read here that they'd make these long prayers and they'd say, okay, oh, we pray and they'd pray in the street corner. Now let's go to that widow's house and see what money we can get from her. Again, all too familiar with what's going on today with the prosperity teaching that are out there. I don't know if you heard this or not. It's been, people sent me notice that it happened. I saw it on, on, online. But recently, Benny Hinn supposedly has repented from his prosperity gospel teaching saying he will never ask people again for $1,000 again or any amount at all. But the next day, a video was released of him asking for $120. So maybe it was never asked for any amount but $120, and then it's okay for that. I, I, I don't know. Listen, someday, he's going to have to face the music. We all will. They have to stand before God and give an account for what our actions well, then Jesus says his third woe in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Whoa. In your face. I mean, Jesus is in their face. He's laying it on the line. He's telling it like it is. You travel all over Jerusalem to, to convert a Gentile to Judaism, 
And when you do, you make him as much a son of hell as yourselves, twice as much. But understand, folks, he is being so hard on them because of his love for them and because of his hatred of hypocrisy. Look at verse 4 now. Fourth woe. Or verse 16, rather. The fourth woe. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all the things on it. He who swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on, on it. See, their values and their priorities were all wrong. They were very materialistic and they were focusing on, on the gift and, and on the gold upon the altar rather than the, the things, that, their commitments. See, they found a loophole, and even in their own little laws. If you brought in this gift and you made a vow to God, if you vow by the altar, then you weren't bound by it. You can get out of that, that vow. But if you vowed by the gold that you placed in, then you couldn't get out of it. So they're finding all these different loopholes and they're trying to free themselves from the obligations and the commitments that they made to God. Number five, woe, verse 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So they would spend hours upon hours, taking the little grains of spice to make sure that they had exactly 10% of what they had come in. Because i got to give 10% to God. And so, okay, that's, that's 9.9%. Okay, that's 10%. But they totally lacked how they treated people. Totally oblivious to, to God's concerns. Jesus says in verse 24, they were like blind guides who strain at a net and swallow a camel. So love that Jesus is saying, you're, you're, you're so picky and worried about all these little little silly non-essentials that you've missed the most important thing and that's judgment and mercy and faith. You know, years ago, and I think I've shared this before, in the early days of Calvary Chapel when all the hippies were coming to, to faith in Christ and they were coming into church long hair and barefoot and kind of smelly and, and, and the elders came to Pastor Chuck and said, oh, Pastor Chuck, these hippies are coming in and they're barefoot and they're, they're sticking in their toes and their big toes in the communion cup holders and, and it's just disgusting and, and, and they got really dirty feet and they, we got new carpet in there. Their dirty feet's gonna wreck the carpet. They can't do that. I love what Pastor Chuck Smith said. Oh my, then we better get rid of the carpet. I love it. I love it because God was doing their work in those hippies' hearts and many of them are pastoring churches today. Jesus is going to mention in a minute, hey, you clean the inside up of the cup and the outside will, will follow. Listen, let God clean the inside. Or, you know, let God clean the inside out first. We're so worried about the exteriors. But I love what, what Jesus says here. And I think it's humor. He says, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You know, if a gnat accidentally, you know, comes into your mouth, you I got to get this out, you know, uh, it's going to be work, you know, it, it's not good, you know, but, and you put it maybe a net over your teacup and I can't swallow a net, but in the process, you got a camel's hoof in your throat. I mean, it's like, oh, what's going on? You've missed the, the net, but you've swallowed a camel. What a joke. And some people, they do this, they get all picky. I, you know, Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Why is it you're so worried about the, the sliver in someone else's eye when you've got a beam sticking out of your own? Oh, let me help you get that, that sliver out of your eye, the beam coming out of your head. Jesus said in Matthew 7 5, a hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So often we come to church and we're so worried about what everyone else is thinking or saying or doing or wearing, but we forget that God wants to work in our own hearts. Now, as we move through these next few woes, we're at woe number six, look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Let me ask you, who of you, when you're cleaning your pots, ladies and guys and pans, would you just clean the outside of it? Okay, that's good. Let's put it away in the shelf. Maybe 41 years ago tomorrow, I might have done that, you know, uh, when I was single. You know, just clean the outside of it. Okay, that's good enough, you know, and just kind of scrape it out and put something else in there until you saw the green fuzz kind of put it up and that's okay. Or maybe I ought to wash it a little bit. Now I, I couldn't get away with that at all, you know. Oh, clean it. But where does God start? God starts on the inside. Then we work on the inside, and, and that works its way out. I mean, that's what he's saying. God starts at our hearts. He looks at our hearts. Well, number 7, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. To be full of there means to be controlled by. Jesus says you're controlled by your hypocrisy. Now understand this, to understand this better, we need to know that they would actually whitewash grave stones, the tombs. And the reason was that if a Jew touched one of the gravestones, they would become ceremonially unclean. They would get their cooties and they, they couldn't then worship the Lord and, and they couldn't go to the temple and they had to go through this whole ceremonial cleansing process before they can go to the temple. So if they whitewashed the tombs, then they would spot them, they would see them, they would avoid them, and they could walk and be okay. Oh, there's a grave, can't step on that one. But the result was the graves looked really, really nice, but if you were to open them up, there was corruption inside. They had beautiful looking tombstones. You know, we do the same thing, huge, beautiful looking tombstones, but what's inside isn't so beautiful. That we bury these people in these $100,000 caskets. Air conditioning, stereo, you know, tuck and roll interiors. I've had people at funerals say, oh, what a beautiful casket. Who cares what the casket looks like? I hope when I die you're not concerned about the casket. (laughs) Yeah, it's a beautiful casket, but you don't want to look inside. I mean, there's just corruption, there's death. Oh, look at the, the rabbi. You know, he's, he's got this phylactery on his head. Look at the size of his tassel. Look at his staff. Look at his diamond. Look at this hat. Look at that. I, I mean, even today, so again, what they wear is, is ridiculous. Where do we ever come up with some of the stuff that people wear, religious people wear? Where is God in all of this? That's what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 29 now. This is the last woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? 
Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Just read the book of Acts, and, and you'll see that. Then on, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He goes back to the first martyr, Abel, in the Old Testament, to the last of, of the martyrs, the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, and between thousands of prophets that were killed from these hard-hearted Hebrew nation leaders. Yet all these martyrs were ultimately pointing to the same direction, to, to, to the Jewish Messiah and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is saying here is that when they rejected him, Jesus is saying they were responsible for all the blood of all the martyrs in the past. And I believe that a lot of the persecution of the Jews is in fulfillment of what Jesus is saying right here. The blood of the righteous coming upon them. This brings us to our last point. Last division of this chapter. It's quite moving. I give it the word lamentation. So we had explanations, we had denunciation, and finally lamentation. Verses 37 through 39. Jesus begins in verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting, whenever Jesus repeated the name, it was a sign that his heart was broken. I think in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, when he cried for Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And Luke chapter 10, 41 and 42, when Martha wanted Jesus to rebuke Mary, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Or in Paul, in, in, in his conversion, Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here he begins the same way, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Sorrow overwhelms his heart at this point. And I believe he's still there, standing in the temple. He's talking to these people and his disciples. And now tears are running down his cheek after all these things he just said. And in verse 37 through 39, we read, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. You see, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me, see me, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is just lamenting here. I think that's why many of the people at that time thought that Jesus was Jeremiah the prophet because Jeremiah was known as a weeping prophet. But what a fascinating combination we have here. In one side, Jesus is denouncing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. God hates hypocrisy. And then in the same sermon, he begins to weep over their lost condition. It was said of D.L. Moody that he could never preach on hell without tears in his eyes. Someone said at that time that was, he was the only preacher qualified to speak on hell because he wept when he spoke on hell. Jesus began to weep. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets. Those that were sent to you. And then he says, oh, how often I wanted to gather you as, a, as, as your children together as a hen gathers your chicks. See, right there is God's desire. God's will. God is, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God's word says. Know that God still weeps over the unrepentant today. He longs for you to come to Him. I would say especially those playing the hypocrite. Those who come to church and sing the songs and carry their Bibles, going through all the motions, but there's no reality there. May have substituted ritual for reality and rules for a relationship with God. God knows your heart. And God weeps over those that are in that place and He wants you to come and believe and trust Him and put your faith and trust in Him. Jesus says, but they would not. 
They would not do it. See, that's man's responsibility. Because God's not going to violate your free will, your free moral agency. See, I believe that the Bible teaches that God's grace can be resisted. It can be spurned. It can be rejected. Jesus said in John 3, uh, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. But you've got to open the door. He's not going to force himself in. Open the door and receive Jesus Christ. He weeps over Jerusalem when he says, Your house is a reference to their nation and their temple which is left unto you desolate. And I believe what he's doing here is he's referring to his second coming, which we're going to see next time together in, in Matthew 24 in, in the famous Olivet Discourse where Jesus predicts the signs of his second coming. And we'll, we'll begin a series on the end times and Olivet Discourse and this prophetic utterance of Christ. But look at verse 39 again, and we'll close with this. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, They will look on him whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is talking about the Jewish people. Again, remember Jesus rode in on the donkey on Palm Sunday. They said, Hosanna in the highest. Save now, Hosanna to the son of David. But then they're going to crucify him. And then he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. And then he's going to return in the second coming. And they will look at him whom they have pierced when Christ returns. And they will say at that point, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying here. But what a stern message this was that Jesus had for the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think that it's wise for us in light of of, of this, to ask ourselves, am I living in duplicity? Am I living in hypocrisy? Am I living in pretense and, and show? Am I really living a life that people think I am? You, know, you can fool some people some of the time, but you can never fool God. I've, I've heard, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I heard that when they were restoring the Queen Mary there in Long Beach, California, they, they went to restore the smokestacks, and they found that the inside metal of the smokestacks had completely rotted away. And the only thing that was holding it together was the layers of paint that, that surrounded it. And if you looked at it, you think, oh, that looks like it's a steel smokestack. But, but if you look closer, you see that they still completely rotted away and it was just layers of paint. How many times do our lives become the same thing? All these layers and layers of piety and religiosity and, and, or, or holiness, but inside maybe it's all rusted away. No reality. There's no real heart for God. David said this, last verse, he said, and I'm going to look at Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe it's a good prayer to close with. Lord, search my heart. See within me. Try me and know me. See if there's any wicked way. If there's any hypocrisy in my life. Lord, help me to turn from that. If there's anything that's not real in my life, if my relationship with you is not real, what if I've not truly repented of my sin? Help me to do so right now, today, as we close this morning. And I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that, Lord, of all that these scathing words, all these things that, that you brought up against these Pharisees for their hypocrisy, that you close with your love and grace, just the sadness over their hearts. And Father, I know that if there's any of us here 
that have not repented, that have not turned from our sins, it, it breaks your heart. And I know your word says that, that you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And I pray right now, Father, if there's anyone here that has not come to repentance and they, they've not committed their life to you, Lord, would you speak to their heart this morning? Help them to know, Lord, that there's no better place than to be in your arms through your grace and faith in you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again. You've never come to him. You've never asked him to forgive you of your sin and you recognize that today's the day you want to be born again. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? This is just between you and the Lord. Father, I thank you. That Lord, that, that uh, you've called us to be your, your children. Lord, I know as kids from time to time, Lord, we cannot do what you say. And we can get ourselves in trouble and we can walk away from being obedient to you, Lord. And we can, we can live that for a while, Lord. And maybe there are some of us here this morning and you've convicted our hearts of this hypocrisy, Lord. We just want to confess that to you right now. Lord, help us to walk humbly before you. Help us to walk uh, in holiness, Lord. Help us not to, to put on the show, Lord, to be, but to be real, Lord. And thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.